rewind the clock 18 months ago as we entered the first lockdown. One of the things we did is we did some midweek conversations. I felt this kind of sense of like, I don't really know how to lead in a moment like this. I don't know what the Lord's doing in a moment like this. So we took this verse from Matthew 16, where Jesus says to the Pharisees, you can look at the stars and you can forecast the weather, but why can't you read the signs of the times? Like, why can't you see, this is Jesus saying, what I'm up to right now, the kingdom of God that's breaking out amongst you. Why can't you even see the kingdom of God at hand? So we decided we would carve out space to ask um, a number of pastors globally in different contexts what they thought the Spirit was doing. And the heartbeat behind that was so that we could jump on board. We had no idea what we were doing. We thought they might know what they're doing and we can jump on board what they sensed the Spirit up to. Um, And if you missed that, it's still on our YouTube channel under this kind of like subtitle, Reading the Times, some incredible interviews with Danielle Strickland, um, Debbie Wright, Jay Pathak, John Mark Comer, John Tyson, Mark Says, the list goes on. Some absolute gold um, in a time of real vulnerability and crisis. Them just speaking in. This is what I sense the Spirit doing. So I want to do my best attempt, which falls short of all of those interviews, of articulating what I think the Spirit might be doing right now, 18 months on from that moment. Um, and, And really the summary would be, I think this is a moment of yearning. Um, where we're seeing a yearning, a deep, deep longing expressed in the church, but a deep yearning in the culture around us. And there's four areas of that yearning I want to kind of speak into each of the four. Let's start with this, a yearning for home. Um, I think we've experienced this season um, with a sense of homesickness. We lost what was familiar, what felt safe and secure. And I don't know if you've actually lived away from home and experienced that sense of homesickness, but it's deeply disorientating. Like you feel like anxiety and a yearning. I want to be back where it's safe and secure. I want to be with people I know and love. And I think a lot of us have experienced that in our home life career, wherever else, this sense of like yearning for safety, security, yearning for something familiar, not just life pre-lockdown, but a sense of being safe and secure in our environment. And really the root of that is a yearning for the kingdom of God, a yearning for God's plans and purposes, a yearning for restoration and redemption. And we see it in the church, right, as we're saying like, God, would you break in? This, is, this sucks. Or would your kingdom break in in this moment? But beyond the church, and this is what I really want to speak into, we're seeing signs of that yearning. So I just want to do like a recap of the last 18 months. As we look out in the surrounding culture and see the signs of a spiritually hungry people experiencing this yearning. Um, so you'll see in this image, do you remember that moment? sort of early on in lockdown where we developed new routines. Um, And one of our new routines was Thursday, 8 p.m. We step outside the front door and we clap, we cheer, we bang saucepans. And we basically celebrate the frontline workers that were putting themselves at risk. But I I want you to notice some of the the symbolism and and the posture here. It's, It's essentially a posture of surrender. It's like an SOS sent up to the, to the NHS. Like, help! We're so grateful. Help! Like, in this moment, we're like, we really need you to deliver help! Um, so that it looks very similar to a posture of worship. If I could do Photoshop, I could, like, move them into the back of our gathering and they would fit right in, right? Just, yeah! You pull me through. Going for it. 
Um, but, but notice the imagery of the rainbow, right? Which is more than just the imagery of inclusion. Like in terms of the scriptures, it's from the story of Noah. It's the imagery of redemption. It's the promise of God towards recreation, that he's going to redeem and recreate all things. So in a moment of crisis, we were gathering on our doorsteps, like sending up an SOS with this imagery of redemption, essentially a cry of the heart of like, save us. We didn't, all of us in terms of the surrounding culture, know who we were saying it to, but it was like, help somebody help. That's culture searching for a saviour. Fast forward the clock. And we saw our streets filled with people protesting, protesting the systemic racism that robs so many people of fullness of life. And people rightly took to the streets, took to their knees and said, this cannot go on. We're, we're lifting our voices. This has to come to. And then we want to expose the systemic racism that's present in our society within communities and, and institutions. But again, notice the posture. And notice that the imagery, the, the symbolism of it all. Like this posture became popular in the NFL as basically some of the American footballers said, like, we're, gonna, we're not going to actually make a stand, but we're going to make a stand by taking a knee during the national anthem. And we're basically saying we're not going to stand for the systemic racism present in our society. So during the anthem, we're going to take a knee. And lots of people started to do that. And it had, you know, a huge impact. But if you notice the posture, Yes, made popular through, you know, footballers like this, but it actually goes way back to 1965, Selma, Alabama, as Martin Luther King, during a protest, took the knee. And this wasn't just the posture of protest, it was the posture of prayer. He wasn't just saying, we need to protest this. He was like, we need to get to one knee and say, God, you're our only hope for deliverance. Like we need your kingdom reign to break in. We need the justice of heaven to be made known on our streets. And therefore that became very popular. And fast forward the clock, streets across this country, all over the world, people essentially saying or taking on the posture of Martin Luther King, we need to pray, pray. We need to, to turn our gaze to heaven and ask the kingdom of God to, to break out. Now, there's another sign that you could see in the last few months if we fast forward the clock. And this one is a tenuous link, I know, um, but I'm going to make the link anyway. Um, an anthem rose up that united a nation. It's coming. Oh, that's awful. That, I, I really dreamt of that moment and just I, I thought everyone would just jump on board. But like, thousands and thousands of people joining an anthem and yes it's a tenuous link because we're going to sing it at the world cup in a year's time two years later we'll sing it we'll keep singing it until we win something and then when we win something we'll keep singing it but but notice the anthem and the deep cry of the heart for like homecoming like I, I want to be at home in the world I want to be united with people in a moment of disconnection I want to feel safe and secure in my surroundings. It's a deep cry of the heart. And we heard it all over our streets, the cry for homecoming. Um, so this is the culture in search of a saviour. But it's more than just humanity raising its voice. I think what we've seen in the protesting of Extinction Rebellion, um, we've seen the voices of humanity say, look, we, we need a change. Like the way we're using and abusing our planet, something has to shift. But it's more than humanity raising its voice. All of creation is raising its voice. 
Like I think if Jesus was teaching into a moment like this, he, he would basically be saying, can you see the sign of the times? Like, can you see what's happening? People raising their hands saying like, help, SOS. People getting on their knees praying to the God they don't believe in. Look, would you step in and would you redeem? They're singing like, come home, we're coming home. Lord, would you lead us to that place of homecoming? And creation is joining that sound lifting its voice through floods and fires like we've got to open our eyes we've got to open our ears to this sound that's stirring like this is a moment for the gospel this is a moment for the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and what's interesting to me is that beyond just creation raising its voice, beyond football hooligans raising their voice, beyond like celebrating the NHS and making a protest against systemic racism, one of the things you're beginning to see right now is academics at the highest level um, develop this spiritual curiosity that's fascinating. Like when we began KXC, there was this kind of rise of the new atheists. Everyone was reading Dawkins and Hitchens and, and Harris and others. Like we hate God. We think Christianity, religion, it's dying. And now there's a new breed of agnostics and atheists basically with a spiritual hunger and curiosity. I want to read you some extracts from a fascinating article called The Turning Tide of Intellectual Atheism. The subtitle, a growing number of leading serious intellectuals are recognizing the need for Christianity's resurrection, but can't quite bring the faith to life themselves. So let me read you some snippets. It basically goes through some of the leading academics of our time. Um, historians, psychologists, scientists, starting with Niall Ferguson. He says this, I don't buy the idea that evolution alone gets us to be moral. It can modify behavior, but there's just way too much evidence that in the raw, when the constraints of civilization fall away, we behave in the most savage way to one another. I'm a big believer, notice this language, this is agnostics, atheists. I'm a big believer that with the inherited wisdom of a two millennia old religion, we've got a pretty good framework to work with. Goes on to talk about Sir Roger Scruton who passed away fairly recently, um, but towards the end of his life, a brilliant leading Oxford academic, uh, towards the end of his life, he started going back to church to worship the God he didn't believe in. He described Christianity as the soul of Western civilization. He stated that the uniquely Christian concept of forgiveness was utterly indispensable to its survival the survival of our civilization. Goes on to talk about Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you've seen the clip of Jordan Peterson, um, that's gone viral, where he starts talking about the person of Jesus and then just starts weeping. Like he, he, he's just mesmerized by the historical person of Jesus and he can't quite articulate what he actually believes in Jesus and whether he has a personal relationship, but he's so moved by the person of Jesus. When the camera's on him, he just starts weeping. These are some of the leading intellectuals of our time. It goes on, Douglas Murray, Murray who described himself as a Christian atheist. Uh, what does that even mean, a Christian atheist? essentially a cultural Christian. He describes Christianity as essential because secularists have been thus far totally incapable of creating an ethic of equality that matches the concept that all human beings are created in the image of God. In a column he recently wrote, he noted that post-Christian society has three options. The first is to abandon the idea that all human life is precious. That's terrifying, right? Another is to work furiously to nail down an atheist version of the sanctity of the individual. And if that doesn't work, option three, there's only one place to go, which is back to faith. 
whether we like it or not. He goes on, recent podcast, he was a bit more blunt. He said this, the sanctity of human life is a Judeo-Christian notion which might very easily not survive the disappearance of Judeo-Christian civilization. He's calling people essentially back to faith, but he doesn't quite know what that faith looks like. The article goes on to, to reference Charles Murray, a great American social scientist who as an agnostic has stated that the American Republic is unlikely to survive without a resurgence in Christianity. These agnostics saying the hope for America is a resurgence of the church and Christianity. Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, but the brilliant, brilliant historian whose epic book, Dominion, um, subtitled How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. He's an agnostic in this book telling the story of the revolution of Jesus Christ and how that's the hope now for Western civilization. Like if you watch some of his interviews and you ask him about his personal faith, he's not quite sure what's going on. He's been going to church. He's not quite sure like what he believes, but he's calling society back to the person of Jesus. Absolutely fascinating and leading academic of our time. And then this is the conclusion of the article. Listen to this. Not so long ago, the atheists, this is like Dawkins, Hitchens House, who retreated to their Darwinian towers and bricked themselves up to fire arrows at the faithful, they wanted to be there in their ivory towers. Their intellectual silos were a refuge from faith because they didn't want Christianity to be true. They hated it and thought we'd be better off without it. They were thrilled to find arguments that permitted them to reject it. Increasingly, though, some intellectuals from across the disciplines, history, literature, psychology, philosophy, are gazing out of what was once a refuge and wishing that somehow they could believe it. They have understood that Christianity is both indispensable and beautiful, but their intellectual constraints prevent many of them from embracing it as true. And then listen to this. This is beautiful. Viewing Western civilization with its Christian soul cut out, many are now willing to say, we need Christ. What they are unable thus far to say is, I need Christ. But the political must become personal. How, how amazing is that amongst some of the leading academics? They're basically saying, I think we need Christ and what he stood for. But this political like moment, which is like so crazy to get your head around, like it must become personal in terms of this longing for Jesus Christ, this deep longing for homecoming. So that's the first thing. I want us to open our eyes to see this as a moment of deep spiritual hunger, that we are experiencing it, but it goes way beyond the church to all around the culture. Secondly, then, there is a yearning for family. One of the things that's been most painful when it comes to church in this last season is essentially we've not been able to gather together. We've been doing it online, and then we have been able to do it together in person. But we've basically said to people, come, don't talk to anyone, Please don't sing, don't lay on hands, please don't mingle, go home, see you next Sunday, right? And and it's very hard to function as a family when you can't function as a family, right? And, And this is more than just church. Families haven't been able to function as families. This is where we need to name COVID has robbed us of so much, I know people within our own staff team, they haven't seen parents, their wider family, for the best part of two years. There's, there's a yearning to see their immediate family, but we've experienced it as a yearning to experience intimacy, connection in a time of deep disconnection, right? 
So we're all experiencing church hasn't felt like family. COVID has robbed us of so much of that. There's so much learning from the last two years that we need to lean into. But I want to look at the remedy. Like, how do we create family in a moment like this? Because we need to press into that. And three quick thoughts. Number one is, is to prioritize being in the room. To prioritize being in the room. To pick up the habit of church going. Um, There's something about the disconnection of online church that's been really damaging in terms of spiritual formation. The beautiful thing about family, a family like this, is there are people in the room that are not like you. Upbringing, totally different. Even where they grew up, totally different. They have different political perspectives and preferences, maybe slightly different value system, a different priority system through which they live life. And what happens is on your journey towards Christ-likeness and on their journey towards Christ-likeness, we bump into each other. Right? And we find some people really attractive. Sparks fly, you know what I mean? And, and it's like, wow, this is amazing. So good to meet you on our journey towards Christ-likeness. And, and other people, we bump into and sparks fly and we're like, I find you incredibly annoying. And, and we might not actually communicate that, but that's what, that's what church does. We're confronted with people not like us. And as the spirit of God is at work, we learn to love. I would say the discipline of living life in community is one of the most powerful formational disciplines we have, bar bar none, right? Online church will not help you confront your selfishness, right? It will not be an inconvenience to you. Like coming to church and sitting next to someone you find annoying, it will be an inconvenience to you. But as you learn to love them, and as we form family, something happens that the world looks at the church and basically says, oh my goodness, there's something there I want to experience. Jesus said, it's your love for one another that will communicate to the world that you belong to me, that you're my disciples. You can't have that through online church. So online church is an incredible tool for mission. And we will continue to utilize online church in reaching people that want to explore Christianity. It might feel like too much of a jump to to rock up to a Sunday service, but they can watch it online and think they're not all weirdos. A few of them are, I could see them in the crowd. Um, But they're not all weirdos. And I think, oh, I think I could try that out. So it's an amazing tool for mission reaching people that we would never reach otherwise. It's an amazing way of enabling those that can't be in the room to be part of the family. If they're self-isolating, if they're vulnerable, if there's health issues, whatever it might be, like we can get into hospitals, we can get into homes, we can get like global by, you know, offering online church. So it's an incredible tool for mission and it's a lousy tool for discipleship. And I, I really mean that. Happy to go on the record saying it is a lousy tool for discipleship. Because family, when you learn to do life together, it's so difficult, but beautifully formative. So I just want to encourage you, like, come regularly. Like, come enough for it to be an inconvenience. Like, listen to some preachers where you fundamentally disagree. Or have a chat after the service with someone who says something you like, you really disagree and you're offended by. That's part of being family together. So number one, be in the room. Number two, I want you to notice who's not in the room. Who's not in the room? Who's not in the tent? Like if we'd done this two years ago, who would have been there that isn't here right now? Or if it's a Sunday gathering, pre-lockdown COVID, who would have been in the room that isn't in the room right now? And ask yourself the question, why are they not in the room? It could be because they've left London. Quite a few have. It could be because they've lost their faith. It's tragic, painful, but it is a reality of this season. 
It could be that they're just on holiday, a very long holiday. Um, but I, I reckon the most common answer is I don't know why they're not in the room. Like, if we believe church is a family, it should be incredibly difficult to leave church. Like, if one of my kids, you know, later in life said, Dad, I, I, I want to leave the family. I want to change my name. I, I want to disconnect from my family. I, I would fight tooth and nail of, like, it doesn't have to be like that. We can reconcile whatever differences. Like, it, it shouldn't be like that. In the kingdom of God, in the family of the church, it should be very difficult to leave. It should be almost impossible to leave through the back door with no one noticing, right? And, and we've operated in the last two years. It's been very easy to leave local church, just to slip out the door and no one knows. And I want to encourage you, if there's someone that used to be in the room that isn't in the room right now, to pick up the phone and to you know, ask them. And a, a phone call could look something like this. Hey there, mate. Um, just notice you haven't been at KXC for quite a while. Now, it could follow on, and I'm not impressed. You know, like the judgment voice, I'm worried about the state of your soul. Yeah, so it could look like that. Or it could look like, I haven't seen you at church, and I really miss you. And I wanted to check you're okay. Could a phone call like that honestly create any offence? You might get the pushback, do you know what, I've given up on church, given up on faith. Or you might get, you've noticed, like you've missed me. And then you say, why don't you come next Sunday? I'll meet you before. Like, if, if there were literally hundreds of those conversations, if we all chose five people that we were going to pick the phone up in the next couple of weeks, I think that would communicate an incredible amount of love. Right? So many people have left church and, and no one realised. What does that say about family? When you can leave and no one even notices. Like, that is heartbreaking. So I want to encourage you, be in the room. Secondly, notice who isn't in the room. Let's pick up the phone. And thirdly, build the community you want to be a part of. I, I've had this conversation multiple times with, with people at KXC where they basically say, I've been here like 10 years. Um, B and I have actually been here 11 and a half. Um, but something, I've been here 10 years, been here seven years. And I feel like I'm new right now. And, and I want to say, welcome to the club. Like there's moments where I'm preaching and it's like, I, I feel like a newcomer. I'm waiting for people to welcome me to, to KXC. There's like so many new faces and we want to say um, to those that are new, we are so excited that God has led you to this family, believing that you're going to make a contribution to this family that's going to shape this family and help us be the community that we're created by God to be. And I want to say to those that have been here for some time, I think what this moment requires from us is to press in and give the same level of investment that we first gave to create community five, seven, ten years ago and to make that investment again now. Like almost all of us to treat ourselves as new. So we're going to say hi to everyone. We're going to put in the hard yards of building community, the kind of community we want to be a part of. Rather than critiquing what the community isn't, we're going to be like, do you know what? I want to be part of an unbelievably welcoming community and I'm going to put in the hard yards. I, I want to be part of a community where everyone is known by name. I'm going to learn people's names. I'm going to talk to five people around the lunch table that I haven't met before. Put in the hard yards because what will happen, it will create a family that just feels beautiful to belong to. So be in the room, notice who's not in the room and build the community you want to be a part of. Thirdly then, um, there's a yearning we're seeing right now for healing. A yearning for healing. And again, 
We feel this individually, we see it collectively, we see it in the surrounding culture. We've all become more aware of our brokenness, our mental fragility, our impatience. Like all of it has come to the surface where we're aware of it. And we know, oh, I need healing, right? But I want you to listen to the voice that society around us tells you about the remedy, right, to that healing, which is look after yourself. Like, love yourself. It's basically the gospel of, of self-care. Now, this was happening pre-lockdown. I tried to name it. I tried to name some flags that what I was seeing in the church was a rediscovery of the spiritual disciplines redirected towards personal wellness, not formation into the character and likeness of Christ, not towards participating in the story of the kingdom of God. That The end goal of some of these disciplines was personal wellness. I, I was in so many conversations with people like discovering Sabbath, like for the first time, like I have a day off every week. It's incredible. And I've noticed it's really good for my personal wellness. You know, people are saying, I've started meditating. I wake up each morning, I focus on my breathing. I become aware of myself. Um, and, and, and then I, I just allow some stillness. And it's, it's been really good for my personal wellness. And I've heard people picking up disciplines like gratitude. I make lists every morning of things I'm grateful to myself for. And, and as I've done that over weeks, I, I've realised it's been really good for my, my personal wellness. And, and essentially, there's this kind of, everything is redirected towards personal wellness. Now, I'm exaggerating to make the point. We are living in a mental health epidemic. We've lived through trauma. So some of us are displaying the signs of post-traumatic stress. Like, we need to take this stuff incredibly seriously, right? What, what I'm trying to critique is the remedy. Like we are all feeling desperately broken at times and you don't have the resources to love yourself to life. Let me just break it to you. You do not have the resources to love yourself to life. You don't have that within you, right? What's happening right now is, again, people are, are building up boundaries. Everyone's like really desperate to have the right boundaries in place. But some people have so many boundaries, they don't see anyone. They're totally isolated. I, I, got, I can't see you. I've got some boundaries around my personal wellness. Um, so many boundaries that I, I don't live in connection with anyone anymore. You know, in fact, there's such an obsession around the self-care, self-help movement. The more we go after loving ourselves to life, the more anxious we're becoming, the more disconnected we're becoming. Um, so notice the remedy from Scripture because it's entirely different. This is a rabbi in the first century. His name is Jesus. He said this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. That's not self-care, by the way. That, that's self-denial. Like if you think Jesus is like a good guide, a sage to living life really well. He basically say, get off the train of self-care, thinking that you have the inner resources to love yourself to life. You, you don't. You're not that good. You're great, but you're not that good. Um, he says, deny self, take up your cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Listen to the Apostle Paul, who basically talks about this in a letter to his mate Timothy to the church in Ephesus. He says, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, if, if you want to up the ante on anything, you talk about the last days. Like, if you read through Paul and he's really wanting to make a point, be like, in the last days. You know, it's apocalyptic. The word apocalyptic means unveiling. It means exposing, right? What Paul's actually saying is you will live through moments where culture and society is, is exposed. 
right? We're living in apocalyptic days. I really mean that. This last two years has felt apocalyptic, right? Where almost the curtain's been pulled back and we see society and the brokenness and, and all of the stuff of what it really is. Paul says, well, in those moments, in the last days, this will be one of the signs. People will be lovers of themselves. In other words, they'll develop this mindset that the pathway to human flourishing is love of self. Paul says, like, when you see that, you've got to wave some flags because that isn't the kingdom story. He, he goes on, they'll be lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents. I regularly tell my kids that. They'll be ungrateful, unholy. And it keeps going on. And then listen to this language, verse 5, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. In other words, practicing all the disciplines, but they're redirected towards personal wellness, not towards becoming like Jesus, participating in his kingdom story. What would it look like if we said, look, we don't think self-care is the answer. We're going to have some good boundaries because we need good boundaries. I'm a big advocate of good boundaries, by the way. Um, But we're going to make sacrifices to love those around us and to lay our lives down for the most vulnerable in society. In other words, we're going to have boundaries, yes, but there will be an absence of some boundaries because we want to lay our lives down for the lost and the least and and the broken. And we're going to recklessly give ourselves away. Paul would say, we're going to pour ourselves out like a drink offering. That doesn't sound like personal well-being. Paul says, I'm going to pour myself out like a drink, drink offering. This is Philippians 3, I think it is. Echoing Philippians 2, which is the hymn of Jesus who emptied himself and became nothing. Paul says elsewhere in his letter to the church in Corinth that Christ Jesus, though rich, became poor so that others might become rich. Emptied himself for the well-being of those around us. We cannot allow into the church this mindset that self-care will lead to human flourishing. It's the love of God that leads to human flourishing. Amen? So what do we do? when we feel the deep brokenness. My hunch is some in the room will be like, kind of, yes, but I'm really fragile and I need some really good boundaries and dot, dot, dot. What do we do? If the remedy isn't self-care, what is the remedy? And the answer is it's the love of God, right? It's throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. It's, it's coming into gatherings like this and day by day in your own room and saying, God, could you come and fill me with your presence? St. Augustine said, God, you made me for yourself and my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Like the more we go after the self-care thing, the more restless and anxious we're becoming. But when we spend time in the presence of God, we experience deep rest. So in a minute, that's what we're going to do. We're basically going to trade self-care for like, God, I, I actually need an encounter with you. I need to drink from your fountain because like, you're the source of life. And in your light, I see light. So I, I, I want to experience afresh your presence. Um, final thing then, final yearning, coming into land, a yearning for hope. Some of you will be thinking as you see the screen, did that kill Pete having all those H's and one F? Um, yes, it did. It wasn't good for my personal well-being. And, and I desperately t- tried to find a fourth H but couldn't do. But let, let me land with this. We're, we're at a place called Restore Hope. Restore Hope. And and that's the deep cry of our hearts. 
there would be a restoration of hope. I want to close with this verse. This is Romans 15. This is a benediction, a blessing Paul prayed over the church in Rome, the nerve center of the Roman Empire. And this benediction would sort of like go out and expand throughout the empire, bringing a blessing to all of God's people. Listen to the benediction. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And just listen to some of the, the raw ingredients. May the God of hope, that's part of his character. He carries hope. It's not just something he imparts. It's who he is. He is the source of all hope. Like if there's an absence of hope, if there's a greater measure of despair, you're going to find that in God, right? That, that's the source of all hope. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him. So how do you connect to this God of hope? And the answer is trust. You basically say, God, I put my trust that you will bring about the light at the end of the tunnel. That, that you will lead us into a wide open space through the dark valley, the valley of the shadow of death, into green pastures beside still waters where our souls are replenished. I trust you. Not any leading academic, not any politician, not any pop star. I trust you that you can lead us to that place. And, and what happens when we put our trust in God, and this is the beautiful byproduct of faith, trust in God, he will fill you with joy and peace. If you were to name two things that we're most desperate for right now. I think it would be joy and peace. What has COVID robbed us of? I think it's probably joy. I've laughed less in the last two years. I've really missed just that, those moments of belly laughter, of being with the people of God, being with friends and just loving life. At times there's been an absence of joy and at times I haven't felt much peace. Like most of us have felt, high levels of anxiety, high levels of uncertainty. What I've craved, joy, peace. But where does that come from? It comes from the God of hope and when we put our trust in him. And, and what happens then? He says, so much so that you will overflow with hope by the power of the Spirit. In other words, as you experience joy and peace, it will bubble up, bubble up, bubble up, and it will flow from you and you'll be an agent of transformation in the world around you. If you want to be a carrier of joy, a carrier of peace, it's found in the God of hope as you put your trust in him. So this is the moment we find ourselves in. Sound familiar? A yearning for home, a yearning for family, for church to feel like family, a yearning for healing and a yearning for hope. Could it be that this moment, like these next hours, this next 24 hours is like a well where the father's saying like, come and drink from the well because these deep longings they're human longings they're in the core of every human being but they find satisfaction in me so come and drink from the well